You may be wondering why this uh, preacher's congregation looks so joyful and so enthusiastic and why they're not falling uh, asleep or nodding off or looking uh, a little bit bored. It's because uh, the preacher has just, uh, has just told them that uh, this is my last sermon for three months. <laughs> and now your faces look just like that. Yes, as Beryl mentioned, I am going on a, a sabbatical for three months, and uh, and and I'm fa- thankful to Belle that the uh, the slip of the tongue wasn't included in this week's notices, uh, where she uh, announced it as a holiday uh, rather than a sabbatical. I realise that some people uh, the term of sabbatical is uh, is not is not part of your vocabulary or part of your life, uh, but as a as a Baptist minister, in a, in a sense, I am blessed in the. In the fact that the Baptist Union encouraged ministers to take sabbaticals. And uh, it's 12 years since I last took a sabbatical and uh, I felt that it was right and the timing was right and uh, it seemed good. And uh, the theme for my sabbatical um, over the next three months is, uh, is Who Let the Wild Donkey Go Free? And uh, some of you will uh, have heard those words spoken by Rob Bell because it's a, it's a direct quotation from uh, the book of Job. And uh, I've been fascinated with the book of Job uh, probably for about the last, uh, certainly the last 20 odd years. Um, I studied at Spurgeon's College and uh, one of the best things that happened to me during my time at Spurgeon's College was failing my uh, Old Testament theology examination. And uh, the tutor came up to me and said, why don't you, instead of you doing another examination, why don't you just do an extended essay? And then at least you know what the question is and you might be able to, to answer it. And, uh, and that was when my kind of uh, uh, fascination with the book of Job started and I, I wrote a, an extended essay on the book of Job. But I was interested in Job uh, because in, in my life and in our family's life, we've known something of the suffering that Job enters into. Uh, when we were quite young, um, uh, our first two children uh, were born with uh, an uncurable disease and sadly uh, both passed away before they were one. And, uh, and so I, I've always had these questions about, about God and suffering. And in the book of Job, uh, Job, this is what the book of Job is about. It's about the universal problem that mankind has with the problem of suffering. And uh, so this morning I thought it might be nice for you to, uh, to kind of enter into a little bit of my sabbatical. Uh, and uh, it's a little bit of a light reading that uh, my little collection of books on, uh, on the book of Job. And I thought you could enter in just for 15 or 20 minutes into something that I'm going to be spending uh, three months grappling with. Because one of the things that we have to do sometimes with scripture is we have to grapple with scripture. Um, sometimes we have to read it and try and really get to the bottom of, of, of who God is and what God is trying to say and, uh, and what scripture is trying to say to us. So this morning I wanted us to look at, uh, at, uh, at Job for a short while. If you're not as uh, familiar with the book of Job as I am, I'll just give you a quick resume because we're joining the, the book of Job near the end of the book. Uh, when, when God speaks and you need to know a little bit about what has happened before God has spoken. The, the book of Job opens up and Job is living this perfect life. He's, a, he's described as the greatest man in the East. 
God himself says that describes Job as blameless and upright. Uh, we will perhaps say in modern terms he's living the dream. He's got everything. He's got a perfect family, a perfect life, loads of, of money. Well, actually he's got camels and goats and sheep, but they were the equivalent of money in their days. And then suddenly uh, everything in Job, Job's life is taken away from him. Uh, everything that he has, his family, his his sheep, his goats, his occupation, his money, everything is taken about uh, from him. The story does actually explain in those opening chapters why this has happened. Uh, the story goes into the heavenly realms and, and, Joe, and God is having this uh, council meeting and into the council enters this character called Satan. When we hear the name Satan we might think that... What's he doing there? That's for another time. But uh, the, the Satan character challenges God about his servant Job. And he says to, to God, the only reason Job serves you is because you put this hedge around him. You've given all these wonderful things. Who wouldn't serve you and worship you? Take these things away and he'll curse you. He won't worship you. So that's the kind of premise of the, of the book. And then for the next chapters, uh, Job's friends come along and try to console with him. And basically they have this discussion about what's going on in Job's life. Because that's what we do when we suffer, don't we? Uh, we ask those questions. Why is this happening? Or more permanently, why is it happening to me? We know that suffering goes on in the world. We only need to switch our television sets on. But when suffering comes a little bit closer to home, the question that everybody asks what have I done to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? And the friends and Job have this theological conversation that lasts about 20 or 30 chapters. And then finally, we join the book of Job when God actually decides to speak. And that's the first thing really that I want to say. Um, there's a great tension in the book of Job between uh, what Job believed about God on the one hand and what Job experienced in life on the other hand. And at the beginning of the story, those two things are in perfect harmony. But when all these things are taken away from Job, they are no longer in harmony. And Job struggles. And the big relief to this tension is that God speaks to Job. Because one of the, one of the fears that Job had was that God had abandoned him. That God had left him. That God was no longer with him. And very often when we, when, when things go wrong in life, sometimes that's how we feel. We feel abandoned by God. We feel that God is no longer with us. We can't see him quite so clearly. And the great thing in the book of Job, the first thing that I want to say, is that God speaks. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. C.S. Lewis, uh, writing about pain and suffering. And the first thing that I want to say is God speaks into our suffering and challenges our understanding. God speaks into our suffering and challenges our understanding. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? God speaks into our suffering and challenges our understanding. Philip Yancey in his book, When Where is God When It Hurts? 
uh, says this, what could God have said to Job? A few kind phrases, a smile of compassion, a brief explanation of what went on. Any of these would have helped Job. What Philip Yancey is saying is this isn't what we expected God to say. Uh, Job, God's servant, has suffered the worst sort of suffering any of us could imagine. His friends have said to him that it was his fault because he must have committed some awful sin in his life to have encountered so much suffering because there was a belief, um, the technical term is divine retribution. In other words, that you get what you deserve in life, that if you're a good person, then God blesses you, and if you're a bad person, then God curses you. And their conclusion about Job was that if Job was suffering so much and all these bad things were happening to him, he must have done something terrible, and they urged him to repent and seek forgiveness for whatever it was he was done. Job said, I'm not perfect, but I'm not aware that I've committed any grievous or terrible sins. In fact, I I think I'm quite innocent. I think I've tried to serve God. And uh, this is a conversation that goes on throughout. And some people are disappointed with God's response. Because God doesn't give an answer to the reason why Job is suffering. And the difficult thing in life is sometimes... We have to live in that same situation where we're not given reasons for our suffering. Sometimes people try to offer nice, nice, neat, packaged reasons, but actually I'm not sure that they help as much as some people think. God speaks into our suffering and he does challenge our understanding because when we suffer, some of the things that we believed before come into question. You might have been brought up or taught, you know, that if you if you if you believe in God and follow God, then God will look after you. Basically that's what Job believed. But now not only is God not looking after Job, Job is in a situation where he feels that he's become God's enemy. He actually talks about uh, the arrows of the Almighty afflicting him. He feels that God is attacking him and not befriending him. God speaks into our suffering and challenges our understanding. Derek Kidner in his book on Job says this, he says, The basic error of Job's friends is that they overestimate their grasp of truth, misapply the truth they know, and close their mind to any facts that contradict what they assume. It isn't that Job's friends don't speak the truth about God. It's just that it wasn't applicable to Job's situation. And one of the mistakes sometimes we're making in when we come to the Bible is we try and say, oh, this is what it says, so this is what must happen. It must apply to our situation. And that's why it's very important that I said before that sometimes we grapple with Scripture and we don't come up with nice, neat, easy answers. Um, Charles Swindle says a similar thing. He says, when your mind is made up and you think you've already figured out what caused this, you can't really understand the truth because you are no longer listening. Your own conclusions have blocked your hearing. If you read the chapters of Job, there's a kind of uh, repetition to the conversations that they have because the friends have already made their mind up what the problem is. And they don't listen to Job when he says, well, I don't think that's, that's the situation. And sometimes our problem is we've already made up our mind about God. We think that we know God. We think that we understand God. Whenever I read these words at the beginning of Job, the hairs on the back of my neck stand out. 
Who is this that darkens my counsel without words, without knowledge? Because that's us. We think we know more, a lot more than we do. This was what Job was asking all, all throughout. He says, if only I knew where I could find him, that's God. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me. And Job, he wants to take his complaints. He wants to take his complaint right to the top. You know, sometimes uh, if you're annoyed about something in a shop, what do you say? I want to speak to the manager. Go and get the manager. I've got a complaint. I don't want to speak to you. I want to speak to the manager. And basically that's what Job is saying. He says, I want to take my complaint. These friends can't answer my, my problems. They, they're, their theology's uh, not good enough. I want to take my play, complaint right to the top. I want to speak to God. And let's see what God has to say. Because I've got all these questions. And sometimes that's how we feel, isn't it? Sometimes that's how we feel. We want God. We get angry with God. We don't understand what God is doing. And we've got questions. And we want answers. We do want answers. And it's not good enough simply to say, well, there aren't any answers. We don't understand it. Uh, Sometimes we have got to grapple with people and struggle with people and journey with people in their pain. So uh, Job wants uh, uh, to, uh, to, to meet with God and he's got what he asked for. He gets what he asks for. And God says to him, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Uh, some of the uh, versions, you might be interested, some of the versions say, I think it's the author I said, uh, gird your loins like a man. Is that the author I Marilyn? Just, just, just checking, she'll let me know. I think it's the author I Anyway, it's one version. And... Uh, J.E. Hartley points out that girding the loins means literally tucking the skirt or the robe, one's belt. This is done so that one can work unhindered. So in one sense, uh, you know, it's as if God's saying, tuck your shirt in. Some of you might like that interpretation. Some of us prefer the NIV. Brace yourself like a man. Uh, I will question you and you will answer me. Uh, God speaks into our suffering and challenges our understanding. Our understanding of God needs to be continually challenged. And God does challenge that. And whenever we suffer, it does become a test of our faith. The book of Job is a test of his faith. He wasn't aware of the heavenly council meeting where this wager was set up. But basically, God was putting his faith in Job and saying, He's my man. He will come out. He will continue to trust me. Whatever you do to him, he's my man. Job didn't realise. Job thought he'd been abandoned by God when actually God was putting his whole faith in this person, Job, and saying, this is my man. I trust him. I know him. It's frightening, isn't it? Sometimes we don't understand what's going on. Sometimes there are things happening that are beyond our knowing and understanding. Faith is what God gives us to live with uncertainty. Some people have a certain and sure faith and they think they know exactly what God is about. But I think faith is more to do with trusting God when we're not so sure what God is about. Do you remember when uh, Jesus uh, shows himself after the resurrection to the disciples and Thomas wasn't there and Thomas says to the disciples, I'm not going to believe unless I, I put my hands in, in the marks on his hands unless I see it for myself. And when Jesus appears to Thomas 
Of course, Thomas believes, but it doesn't require any faith for Thomas to believe because Jesus stood there before him, showing him the marks on his hands. And Jesus says to Thomas, happy or blessed are those who believe without seeing. Job is in the dark. He can't see God. Everything around him is saying that God is not with him, that God is his enemy, that God isn't for him. And yet, he clings onto that faith. He still wants that encounter with God and that's what he eventually gets. Faith is what gives us to live with uncertainty and some of us have to live with that uncertainty, that not knowing. God speaks into our suffering and challenges our understanding. Secondly, God speaks into our suffering and changes our perspectives. God speaks into our suffering and he changes our perspectives. One of the things that happens in God's speak to Job is that he decides that he's going to question Job. And somebody's worked out, you can check it out for yourself, that there were 77 questions that God puts to Job. Job had got one or two questions for God, but God had got 77 questions for Job. And they are questions on about Job's non-participation in creation. There's that wonderful kind of poetry, you know, uh, where he says, have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Uh, uh, what about the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you take me to their places? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? Uh, can you raise your voice to the clouds? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? God is pointing out to Job that he's in charge of the world, that he created it, and that there's lots of things that happen in this world without Job's knowledge. He doesn't know anything about it. And then he, and then he asks him a, a series of questions about the management of the world. Where again, God explains to Job that he controls all these things. That he's the one that gives orders to the lightning bolts and, and tells the snow where to fall. And then he goes on to the animal kingdom. And he talks about animals that we know and the animals that are weird and wonderful. And again he says, Job, all these things happen out there in my world uh, without your knowledge. It gives him a different perspective. Uh, Frederick uh, Buckner says that God doesn't explain, he explodes. God doesn't explain, he explodes in his speech to Job. I quite like that. We're looking for an explanation and he gives us an explosion. He explodes onto the scene. Well, he talks about the animal kingdom. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth, Job, he says? Uh, and of course, my favourite, uh, who lets the wild donkey go free? You'd have to be a real ass to get, not get that one. God speaks into our suffering and he changes our perspectives. In a sense, God takes Job on a, out of himself, away from what's happening in the world, and he takes him onto this higher plane and he says, look at the stars, look at the sun, look at all these things that I created. Look at the wonder of nature and these wonderful things. And the thing is, you know, 
We see these things, but we don't appreciate them, don't we? Because they're there all the time. We, we, we see a wonderful sunset and, uh, um, we take it for granted sometimes, don't we? Where sometimes, we, you know, you might see a deer, uh, running across the road and, and, you know, but we take these things for granted. And, uh, suffering brings a new appreciation of these things. Because we don't know how many more sunsets we might see. Or how many deers wandering across the path. God speaks into our suffering and changes our perspective. And this is Rick Warren on the front of this month's Christianity. uh, With the headline, I'm not the man I used to be. Some of you will know that Rick Warren's family was faced with tragedy uh, a year ago. When his 27 year old son took his own life. And uh, Rick Warren is the pastor of probably one of the most successful churches in America. He's written the most successful Christian book ever. How about that? That sold millions and millions of copies. But when his son takes his own life, he's reduced to the same as you and I. He asks the same questions. And he says that his life will never be the same again. I'm not the same man I used to be. When things happen, they become part of of your life's message. And he says in the article, you know, why didn't God answer the prayer that I prayed every day for 27 years for my son? And he doesn't know. He knows an awful lot of things, but he cannot answer that question. God changes our perspectives when we suffer. Our perspectives have changed. That our lives can never be the same again. Because we no longer have the pleasure of certainty. We no longer have the assurance of the fact that God is with us. Because it seems at times that God has abandoned us. We know that feeling of abandonment of God that Job experiences. And God goes on to some, talk about some incredible creatures. Can you pull in the, the Lathian with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Some people think he's talking about some uh, crocodile or, or sea monster uh, when he talks about these, uh, these monsters of the deep. And of course you'll know that, that uh, at the beginning of creation when there was chaos, uh, God brings order into that chaos. And of course, Job can't. And then he talks about uh, another mythical creature. Uh, he, he talks about the behemoth, which some people think is a, is, is a creature a little bit like the hippopotamus. And uh, he basically says, these creatures that you see in, in the world that don't seem to serve any purpose to you, that are perhaps a little bit scary and a little bit frightening, I created them and they're part of my creation. And even though you don't understand them, they're still part of my creation. And David Klein's in his book says... Innocent suffering is a hippopotamus. The only sense it makes, it makes to God, for it is not amenable to human rationality. Innocent suffering is a hippopotamus, because it doesn't make sense to us. Because if we were ordering the world, if we were in control of the world, if we were given charge of the world for a day, we wouldn't do it like that. We would get rid of suffering, wouldn't we? This is the moment you say, yes, Richard. That's what we'd do. If we rule the world. But thank God that we don't rule the world. Because what makes sense to us. uh, Might not make sense to God. So God speaks into our suffering. And he changes our perspectives. Changes our perspectives. And then finally God speaks into our suffering. And he chooses to be present with us. God speaks into our suffering. And he chooses to be present with us. 
You asked who is this? This is Job's answer after the, the mammoth speech when God explodes. Finally, Job picks up the confidence to answer. But he's not quite as bold. And he says, you asked who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen, and now I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, Job, the follower of God, the servant of God, who thought he knew everything about God, after that encounter with the presence of God, says, I didn't know anything. But now that you're with me, I know. And I repent. And of course, the one thing that Job's friends had been trying to get Job to do was to repent. And Job was saying, I'm an innocent man. I've not done anything to, do, to repent of. But when he comes into the presence of God, almighty God, who's painted this huge picture of how big God is, we get the big picture of God in Job. He can do nothing but bow down in worship. And at this point, Job is still, his sufferings haven't been taken away from him. He does this in the midst of his sufferings. Again, Rick Warren in that interview in Christianity Magazine, he says, what you need in tragedy is not an explanation. You need the presence of God. What you need in tragedy is not an explanation, but the presence of God. And this is God's great promise to us, that he will never leave us that he's with us in every single situation. And however dark and dismal that situation might be, God is there in the midst with us. He stands with us. And even when friends desert us and we feel alone, we have that promise that God will never desert us, that he will stand with us right to the very end. God speaks into our suffering and chooses to be present with us. H.H. Rowley in his commentary on Job says, God now intervenes. He does, not, he does so not to resolve the intellectual problem, which has been the subject of the debate between Job and his friends, but to resolve the spiritual problem, which lay behind the argument of both sides. The friends were persuaded that Job had sinned and therefore was abandoned by God. Job maintained that his sufferings were not the result of his sin, but yet he was still abandoned by God. The common ground between Job and his friends was that he was cut off from God and his suffering was evidence of this. The effect of the divine speech was to make Job conscious that this was not so and that in his sufferings, even though he could not know the cause, he might yet have the presence of God with him. God speaks into our suffering and chooses to be present with us. He chooses to be present with us. And again, Charles Swindle in his book says, Do you know what Job finally sees? Job sees God, and that is enough. He doesn't see answers. He's in a place where he doesn't need answers. He's gotten a glimpse of the Almighty, and that is sufficient. That is sufficient for Job. God speaks into our suffering and chooses to be present with us. And of course, when we read the book of Job, we read about an innocent person. Without doubt, Job is innocent. God says that at the beginning of the book, and God says it at the end of the book. Job did nothing to deserve the immense suffering that he endured. He was an innocent man. Think about it. God has given us a picture of an innocent man. 
almost a perfect man, almost too good to be true, who suffers. Does this ring any bells to anybody? An innocent man that suffers. Of course, what God is doing is he's preparing us, just as Isaiah talks about a suffering servant when he speaks about Jesus. The book, the Old Testament, points always towards Jesus. And Jesus was that innocent man that didn't deserve to suffer and yet chose the way of suffering. Paul, in that passage that we read at the beginning, says, Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Job is a Christ-like figure who suffers, not for his cause or not because of anything he has done, but for a greater cause that Job knew nothing about. And of course, Jesus suffers for a greater cause. He suffers so that we can enter into that same presence that Job experiences at the end of the book. And of course, if you know the story of Job, uh, all the things that were taken away from Job are are returned and and even more so. And in a sense, that is a picture of us for what is to come. Some of us sadly don't get it in this life. But there is the promise, the hope of an eternity with God. Because God speaks into our suffering and chooses to be present with us. And he is present with us. And he promises an eternal presence. 